You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. And we'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the SpyCast family, Movement Watches. You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. We're joined today by Jeff Stein, who covers the spy agencies and foreign policy for Newsweek in Washington, D.C. His spy talk column originated in 2005 at Congressional Quarterly, where he was Homeland Security Editor and moved to the Washington Post in 2010. Previously, he was Deputy Foreign Editor at UPI. He's an investigative reporter of longstanding, specializing in intelligence, defense, and foreign policy. An Army Intelligence Case Officer in Vietnam, Jeff is also the author of three books, including The Vietnam Factbook, A Murder in Wartime, about the 1969 prosecution of top Green Beret officers for the execution of suspected enemy spy, and Saddam's bomb maker, the daring escape of the man who built Iraq's secret weapon. And there the topic is somewhat self-explanatory. So Jeff, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's great to be here. So as I mentioned in your bio, you are a former practitioner. You spent time in Vietnam working military intelligence. For a lot of people we have on this show that spent time doing some kind of intel work or other, I want to ask the question is. Our audience, there's a lot of them who are college students or grad students or thinking about a career at one point in intelligence. So why did you decide to go into military intelligence during Vietnam? Well, I was being drafted into the infantry. This is the first answer. Uh, And uh, being a draft dodger uh, was not an option for me um, or a conscientious objector. It wasn't something that was on my radar. And I knew that uh, if you are drafted at that time, you were most likely to go into the infantry in Vietnam. And I like to say that I didn't even like camping, so I knew <laughs> I was going to be no good at that. So a friend of mine uh, told me about uh, military intelligence. He was in military intelligence. And he did counterintelligence, in which he, had, he hadn't worn a uniform since he left basic training or left intelligence school. And he essentially uh, was based in Manhattan and did uh, background security checks. And I said, that's what I want. (laughs) And he said, no, you ought to get into something called area studies. And he described that as being an analyst in an embassy somewhere. 
And that sounded great to me. So I signed up for that, and lo and behold, I found out that actually it was training in espionage, or as uh, we call it in the uh, business, uh, being a case officer. So instead of being posted to an embassy in London or Paris, you end up in Da Nang. I ended up in Da Nang, but, you know, it was a very soft ride. Uh, I lived in a villa. Uh, We had uh, maids. Uh, I had uh, a car with diplomatic plates. I lived undercover, uh, allegedly. Uh, It was in civilian clothes. I worked a cover job. Um, And... uh, uh, I had it pretty easy, especially compared to the Marines who were, you know, five miles out of town and really getting their butts kicked by the NVA. Well, according to your bio, you went there in 68 and 69. Is that correct? That's right. So how long after Tet did you arrive in Vietnam? Well, Tet is every year, of course. It's well, New right. Year's. The, but the, the one Tet I'm referring attack, to, yeah, it's There are two big Tet attacks, and the first one, uh, was in January of 1968. So I arrived in November of 68, okay. uh, several months after. Was that something that people were still thinking about or something that was... Because Tet was, is still considered one of the most monumental intelligence failures, even mm-hmm. though militarily it was a huge success. Mm-hmm. The, the Viet Cong essentially stopped existing after Tet, but it was a big surprise. You're right. Uh, actually, it was very much on the mind of uh, intelligence uh, managers in Saigon when I first arrived. I was uh, temporarily assigned to McPhee Intelligence Headquarters, and uh, the officers that I ran into, senior officers who were briefing us, were quick to tell us uh, how American or allied, as they called it, forces had decimated the Viet Cong during those attacks. And even though it was a big psychological victory, and it turned out to be an absolute mm. psychological political victory for the communist forces, that it was uh, a disaster for uh, at least the local communist forces, called, which were called the Viet Cong. Uh, and it did wipe them out. And when I got to my duty station in Da Nang, Uh, I looked at the numbers, and in fact, that was true. Um, uh, Local Viet Cong battalions were down to a strength of 30 men, maybe even less. But uh, I should be quick to add that by the end of the year, they were up to full strength, again, uh, reinforced by, of course, North Vietnamese troops. Well, that's a great segue to my next question. I I used to teach at the University of Maryland, and I taught a course that focused a lot on Vietnam. It was a diplomatic history course. We talked a lot about how intelligence played into, or lack of intelligence, played into the problems that Robert McNamara came up with his idea of counting, you know, doing body counts and reaching the crossover point, the fabled impossible-to-reach crossover point. How much of your job was trying to get an accurate count of the enemy? Because if you don't, you, you, for, for listeners out there that don't understand the crossover point, it's the idea of you can win the war if you kill more of them than they can replace yeah. So how effective do you think, uh, or how much part of your job was it to try to figure out an accurate portrayal of enemy strength? Well, that was a major part of my job, actually. Uh, I ran an operation uh, which was targeting North Vietnamese troops in Quang Nam and Tuy Tien province, which were outside of, surrounded Da Nang, uh, and extended it uh, into the Central Highlands and uh, toward the Ashau Valley. And... <clears throat> Um, my spies, uh, my network of spies, were masquerading or part-time working as uh, laborers. They were woodcutters, they were rice peddlers, they were smugglers and so on. In other words, they had a reason to be in territories controlled by the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. 
And so they would literally count. We taught them how to count and how to observe things. This is really basic military intelligence. So they would come back uh, with, um, through my principal agent, they would forward reports that were really like little wire service reports. They would say uh, X uh, battalion or company or division uh, was uh, headquartered at such and such coordinates and they uh, appeared to be X number of men, and they were wearing X kind of uniforms, which uh, were in either bad shape or good shape, uh, looked like new uniforms mm. or old ones. Uh, they were carrying certain kinds of weapons and how many, uh, and, they, and the report might add that they were practicing to attack the hamlet or village of uh, such and such uh, on sand tables uh, in a jungle clearing. And that was, uh, I would say, that was about 70% of the information I got, just basic military intelligence. Well, and that's incredibly important at that point, certainly. Sure. Uh, was there tension with CIA or other intelligence agencies when you were there? I mean, was there, because there, there has been a lot of back and forth between DIA now and CIA about who should have case officers, who should be doing human intelligence. And, and for the most part, the CIA has argued that they should be the only ones with that as part of their purview. Did you run into any issues when it came to bureaucratic infighting? In I have to first add that the local CIA base chief was great help to me because my boss, when I arrived there, didn't know anything <laughs> about how to run military intelligence operations. He had been a Russian instructor at West Point. <laughs> uh, and I was a rookie case officer, and I had to go meet an agent on the streets and hotels and so on around the city. And, of course, I was very nervous. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and was I doing the right thing and so on. I, since I wasn't getting any direction, I befriended the CIA base chief, and I would sit on his uh, porch late at night in the tropical heat, uh, sipping cognac and smoking cigars, often, uh, often joined by uh, Air America CIA pilots who were flying in and out of Laos. Um, and he would teach me about tradecraft, um, of how to do a proper SDR or surveillance detection route mm -hmm. and so on, uh, how to handle a troublesome agent in a certain situation and so on. So that was really very useful. Of course, at the high levels you have, uh, at higher levels you have a competition. It depends a lot about, uh, depends a lot on the personal relationship right. between the CIA chiefs and the military intelligence chiefs. And, of course, at the highest level in Washington, the battles between the CIA and the military were really intense over uh, basic things as how many enemy are we fighting. Right. So um, those rivalries will always exist, and they will always depend a lot on the personalities of the uh, people who are running uh, their operations. Was this when Ted Shackley was there, or was this before Ted that? Ted Shackley uh, was there when I was there, but of course I was just a peon right. uh, running agents in Da Nang. I wasn't on his radar. He was the station chief right. in, in Da Nang. I later met him and interviewed him. He was very helpful to me in my book, A Murder in Wartime. Let me ask you about uh, career choices because you just when you came back from Vietnam you decided not to make military intelligence a career and obviously you moved into journalism what what made you decide not to continue on with MI actually I decided even before I got on the plane home that I wasn't going to make a career of military intelligence and, and it's kind of ironic because it's a very uh, interesting job you uh, 
you uh, talked to me earlier about career choices and so on, and I have to say that being a case officer, employ it's a, a liberal arts education is perf- perfect education for a case officer because you're going to have to use uh, history, psychology, um, a lot of uh, liberal arts subjects uh, in your uh, ability to run uh, an operation. So, uh, and, you know, it's dangerous uh, at times, and uh, it's kind of thrilling, and it's interesting. And I actually remember thinking, coming back from a meeting once, saying, my God, I was really well prepared uh, by my liberal arts education to do this kind of thing. It's not for everybody. And, and in the long run, I might have not made a really good case officer because a case officer, a good case officer, has the nerves of a cat burglar, and I'm not sure I had those. My hands were shaking a lot. Uh, but uh, um, let me. Did you see no, a I natural? Where, I, where I'm going? No, with that. let me let me take you there. Did you see a natural transition to journalism? I mean, was your training as an intelligence officer a key uh, component for your later life as a journalist? Let me go back to say that uh, to answer the second yeah. part of your question, which I just remembered now. Uh, but the reason I didn't stay in it because uh, the system, as I experienced it, was kind of corrupt. Uh, I was trying to get rid of an agent, for example, who had dual loyalties, not with the Viet Cong, as it turned out, but with an ultra right-wing group that was trying to overthrow the South Vietnamese government from the right. Mm. Um, So uh, not only was my permission uh, to uh, cut this guy loose not granted, uh, but they ended up actually giving him a higher reliability rating, thus promoting him. Mm I later found out from a successor that he was fired, but that really left a soft, uh, uh, sour taste in my mouth. Um, and uh, I wasn't really made out to be in the Army anyway. I'm not an organization guy like that. So uh, it was, in a way, a, an easy decision. But I have to say that the intelligence work was really interesting. Uh, journalism I went into was, uh, you know, not all, all that different because uh, I chose a road of investigative reporting. Right. And there's a lot of similarities. Uh, uh, we're not trying to steal secrets, but we want to know what's going on on the inside, the real story, as opposed to the press releases and uh, statements that government officials put out. It's digging beyond what people are right. to get at the real truth. Right. I talk a lot about dissemination on on Spycast because I think perhaps the public. I mean, our, our former practitioners, our experts, understand this concept, but a lot of people in the public don't get the idea that no matter how good your collection is. No matter how eggheaded your analysts are and how smart they are, if you can't convince policymakers about the information you've collected and analyzed, then you might as well not have an intelligence agency in the first place. And you actually did a famous expose a couple of years ago of the knowledge of certain policymakers within Congress. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered? Uh, and let's part B. Does it seem like it's gotten any better in the couple of years since you've realized that some of the top members? of Congress don't necessarily know a whole lot about what's going on in the world today. Well, you're referring to a piece of mine that became kind of famous after I wrote it uh, for the New York Times in uh, 2006 called Can You Tell a Sunni from a Shia? And it was really a a column based on a compilation of interviews I had done uh, in my job as Congressional Quarterly, uh, National Security and Homeland Security Editor. Uh, You know, we interview a lot of members of Congress and just ask them what their views are. 
And so over time, I had interviewed people on the intelligence committees and asked them their views. And especially in the House Intelligence Committee, this is really not so, not so true in the Senate Intelligence Committee. But in the House Intelligence Committee, I found again and again that when I started to try to discuss serious intelligence issues, policy issues, they didn't seem to know what they were talking about. Um, where they, they tried to sort of bluff their way through answers. And so I began asking them, uh, well, do you know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? Uh, and I would say, you know, not theocratic differences. I'm talking about, you know, Yankees and Red Sox. Right. What team are they on? Um, for example, Al-Qaeda, are they Sunni or Shia? And they would sometimes just guess at it and you know, you've got 50% chance of being right, and they would be, half the time, they would be mm -hmm. wrong. And so I was just talking about that with friends one night over. I said, you ought to put that all together in one uh, solid piece. So I did for the New York Times because it was one of the most read articles of all time in the New York Times. And, uh, and not only that, I followed up about a few months later when there was a new chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Sylvester Reyes, a Democrat from El Paso, and I was interviewing him about whether he favored uh, the surge of U.S. troops into Iraq, and he said he did, and I asked him, well, what do you want to, it to accomplish? And he said, I want him to get the people who are killing Americans. And I said, which groups are they? You know, what? And, and it came down to he didn't know the difference. He didn't, uh, you know, I asked him, uh, do you know if al-Qaeda is Sunni or, Sunni or Shia? And he, and he guessed that they were Shia. Of course, uh, this is a fundamental error. Right. And this is in 2006. We've been at war with al-Qaeda for at least a decade and certainly after 9-1-1. Right. So, um, and then recently I was just, I was interviewing Will Hurd, who's a mm -hmm. freshman member of Congress uh, from uh, El Paso. He uh, defeated Sylvester Reyes. <clears throat> and he's an ex-CIA op uh, operations officer. And we talked for about an hour and a half. Uh, this is about six months ago. And as I was leaving his office, uh, he said, you're the guy that wrote that piece about Sunni and Shia. I said, yeah. He says, boy, we used to have that in our bulletin boards at the CIA. We used to laugh about that all the time. FBI people told me the same, by the way. Anyway, uh, I said, has it changed? And he said, well, they're getting better. Uh, and uh, so that wasn't exactly a vote of confidence. Right. So here we, you know, it's very, very profoundly disturbing that members of Congress who are supposed to provide oversight of the intelligence agencies don't even know who the enemy is. And that, yeah. I'm not saying all of them, right. but I'm saying too many. And this included top FBI counterterrorism uh, counter people, by the way, who not only did not know the difference between Sunni and Shia, but they said it didn't make, it wasn't important to know the difference because they were good at catching criminals. And criminals are criminals. And that was, that's, that's kind of disturbing. Well, that's a fundamental disconnect that a lot of people talk about with the FBI is that they, they're an organization around now over 100 years designed to catch bad guys. Yeah. Not necessarily to do counterterrorism yeah. or prevent. You know, well, they, 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 they changed it a lot after 911. Right. Um, they, they decided they better get into the game of anticipating terrorist attacks instead of waiting for them to happen and rounding up people. Um, and it took them, it's taken them a number of years to come around to that view of looking at themselves as an intelligence organization. Uh, they were used to, you know, their intelligence was basically infiltrating the mob. Right. And it took them a long time, as you know the history of the FBI, it took them a long time under Hoover to get around to seeing the mob as an organization. 
uh, or confederation of gangsters. So the FBI was slow by most accounts, and I did a long uh, cover story on this for CQ Weekly magazine back in the day. They were slow to get around to uh, this new mindset of anticipating crimes rather than just rounding people up. Uh, they are much more aggressive about it now, too aggressive in, in the view of some people who say that they uh, are manipulating uh, sad sacks into uh, taking steps toward, create, uh, toward carrying out terrorist right. acts. Um, but put yourself in their position. Uh, they're terrified of another 911 on their uh, watch. Uh, and if they're going to make a mistake, they're going to go make a mistake of being proactive rather than being uh, passive and waiting for something to happen. Let me tell you a little more about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, this is a company that was founded by four guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized that the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. We've been experiencing this here at the Spy Museum. As we're developing our new museum, slated to open in the spring of 2018, we are hiring new people to work on exhibit development, research, and more. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. And look, we do attract the best people. But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time. Time we don't have, as we try to run our current operation and plan the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. ZipRecruiter distributes jobs to 100-plus of the most visited job boards, websites, and social networks on the Internet. They're always adding more job boards and sources of job secret traffic to expand the audience for your job postings. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to these 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. Let me ask you about overall institutional environment for the intelligence agencies. Because you wrote an article back in December of 2015 titled Wanted Men and Women of Steel for U.S. Spy Agencies. It was really about the idea that these agencies are now telling their employees at every level to tell truth to power, to come right out and be ethical and do essentially what is one of the most important yet difficult things to do in intelligence. And, it, and I, would, I read this, and you were very up front about the fact that this is one of the most unrealistic things we can possibly expect because you see people like Thomas Drake speaking truth to power and then the idea of can you get promoted if you're a GS9 at CIA and speaking truth to power you've essentially destroyed your career so do you see this as a uh, an essentially not an excuse because I'm not going to put you in that position but kind of the mantra of the Snowden crowd of saying there's no way in today's institutional environment within these agencies to actually do that with that suggested what Thomas Drake did and actually work your way up the chain of command as a whistleblower. Instead, you just have to, and this is not a leading question. I actually have my own opinions and they're not even these. So I just want to throw that up in your direction because you've been studying the intelligence community now for, for quite some time. I dare say that you don't have to have worked in an intelligence agency 
to have had to have the experience of a boss walk, the new boss walking into your office and saying, no, I want everyone to be straight with me. You know? I mean, we've all heard that. Um, and, you know, as soon as the guy leaves or the woman leaves, we all look at each other and go, oh, right. <laughs> so um, when, you, when you're talking about the intelligence agencies, they are a paramilitary organization, even though the CIA is a civilian organization. It functions like a paramilitary organization, especially since 911, when its paramilitary uh, wings have uh, become so much more powerful and dominant at the agency. The fact is, and I don't know if you can attribute it to the intelligence agencies or just human nature or corporate nature. The fact is that whistleblowers aren't very popular. Uh, <laughs> they may be right, but they also tend to be the complainer, right. you know, around the office. And which is not to denigrate them either. I'm just saying that it puts them in a a position, uh, not a not a strong position. I would say that that unfortunately, their position has not improved in recent years, uh, as we've seen again and again, especially in the Pentagon, where whistleblowers are routinely mistreated uh, and often find themselves having to go out of channels. Jason Amarine, mm-hmm. the uh, the career uh, Green Beret, uh, you know, he recognized that the hostage policy, our our our, our policies of trying to to uh, locate and rescue hostages, was hopelessly mired in bureaucratic rivalry, and he tr- he fought within the Pentagon to get that changed, and it wasn't go- going anywhere. He, he he faced a strong opposition from the FBI which claimed complete jurisdiction over this, even though they're not a foreign intelligence agency, per se. And finally, so he went to Congress. And then the Pentagon tried to punish him. Uh, it just, that, that's all too typical. Right. Uh, actually, atypical in the sense that he carried, it all, he carried the ball all the way to the, to, to the end zone. But a lot of whistleblowers or would-be whistleblowers just give up because uh, they recognize that their careers could be in shreds after they push an issue too hard. Um, I know a lot of these people, and I know a lot of them that haven't come out of the woodwork yet, and and they're in a very, very tough position. Let me shift gears, because you recently wrote an article about nuclear security, and this is uh, spurred on, I think, to a degree, by a lot of the conversations in politics right now about nuclear security. I want to ask you, as a, as a Cold Warrior, a Cold War vet, do you think the average person understands the risks out there about nuclear weapons and nuclear security? It's a really complicated issue. I mean, it's understandable that people who haven't grown up in the era of thinking about the Cold War and nuclear weapons may not understand the complication of this issue. And the reason I want to ask you this is because there's there's been a lot of very interesting or important conversations about nuclear policy lately, whether it's with Russia, but more you know with the Iran deal, going back to Iraqi WNDs, you know. Do you do you see a generational divide where Cold War vets understand these issues much better than millennials? Uh, I can't <laughs> speak to what millennials are thinking. Um, I think we have an education problem in this country where millennials didn't get as rigorous an education in liberal arts, in other words, history, in particular, that we did. Uh, uh, I, I, I really 
feel strongly about that because we see it in editorial rooms in, uh, too uh, that there's a lack of a solid foundation of education and history and politics, international relations and so on. So I don't think there's a, I don't know about a generational divide, but I will say that um, we tend to talk about nuclear arms. Those of us or anybody who thinks about nuclear arms tends to think about arms negotiate, arms reduction negotiations between us and the Soviet Union and now Russia. <clears throat> um, and the issue of nuclear safety is, is sort of brushed aside. Uh, one, because people don't know about it, haven't heard about it much. Um, and the last uh, and incidents have been covered up. Um, uh, and the ones I wrote about, I was really writing about a new documentary film, a very bracing uh, documentary fil film called Command and Control. It's going to be uh, broadcast on PBS in September, and it's also going to be appear in some theaters in New York, L.A., and Washington and in September and Based on an extraordinary book. Based on an extraordinary book by Eric Schlosser. And... Uh, it centers on a particular incident in Arkansas in 1983 in which uh, uh, a wrench, uh, a piece of equipment fell on the fuel tank and it led to an explosion in the missile silo and the hydrogen warhead was popped out of the silo and landed uh, about 30 yards away. And according to the nuclear experts, including the former head of weapons at uh, uh, at, Los Al at Los Alamos, um, we were about an inch away from a hydrogen bomb going off in Arkansas. There was also an accident with a B-52 over North Carolina. There's still a hydrogen bomb missing from that, presumably somewhere in the ground in North Carolina. Now, these are not big bombs. These are bombs that are bigger than big, right. that would wipe out the central you know, Atlantic coast. Uh, these are bombs in megatonnage. These are megatons. Right these are 100, I don't know, how many times stronger than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, you know, bombs were dropped over uh, Spain. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of incidents uh, with a near explosion of uh, hydrogen bombs or lost hydrogen bombs. Hundreds of incidents. And, um, you know... Officials assure us that, well, look, they never, none of them ever exploded. So that shows how safe the system is. But talk about a glass half empty. Right. Other, you know, equally uh, uh, experienced uh, nuclear experts, including those who developed them, will say, oh, no, uh, we came so close to an accident. And, of course, an accident isn't, isn't like a bad train accident, right. you know, with, with nuclear weapons. You're talking about something that is... Uh, life annihilating um so we should pay more attention to this issue and demand answers like we need to demand answers about a lot of things right. in our politics in our system um and the in, in terms of uh, the danger of nuclear weapons um we're not only not getting changes we're not even getting enough questions asked about it well, and that's a, you see this idea about modernization and people are like you want to spend a trillion dollars it's like well a lot of the, these PALs, the permissive action links, the things that are safeties, are like 30, 40 years old. And you look at, you read this book, and you see that these near misses, and we're counting on four-decade-old technology to protect us from being vaporized. And then, yeah, not, well, the yeah. officials say, look how good they are. Right. 
you know, built back when things were built the last. I suppose <laughs> you can make a case for that. Look how look how yeah. good they are. How how well we built these things so that they they haven't uh, gone off. It's a case to make, I right. suppose. But then again, uh, when the answer if, if the answer goes the other way, uh, maybe millions of people will be dead. You talked about the, the arms control negotiations and great power rivalries with the Soviets and now the Russians. So I want to shift to Russia a little bit. Because as a, as a veteran Cold Warrior, what is your take on the current tensions between the United States and Russia? Are we, are we looking at it through the prism of the Cold War incorrectly? Or has Putin really brought back many of the same tensions that we saw back in the 80s, 70s going? Well, the short answer is it's bad. <laughs> um... We have a confluence of some dangerous currents. One is that Putin is using uh, his foreign and military policies to revitalize and organize uh, the country. And people, the Russians like, apparently, like it. Uh, except those who don't, and they're banished or they're put in jail. Um, and so he's carrying out this what's called hybrid warfare. Uh, in this kind of uh, attempt to uh, reestablish uh, the glory of the Soviet Union, such as it was, um, you know, lost all Eastern European states uh, when the Soviet Union crumbled, um, and is trying to regain uh, influence over these states and maybe even uh, military superiority over them. Uh, Chris Dickey of the Daily Beast wrote a terrific piece about... Uh, Lithuania just yesterday, um, uh, people are really worried about these tensions, and we don't know where it's going to go. At the same time, we have this uh, nationalist uh, fervor uh, being stirred up by uh, Donald Trump on top of uh, already a really uh, rancid partisanship in foreign affairs. Um, there's very little room in Washington and our politics in general to talk quietly and sensibly with nuance about foreign affairs. Right. And uh, so this is a very dangerous time when you've got these two forces against you. And I, I would add in China uh, in this regard also. Uh, I was in China last September. Um, you start to seeing little knickknacks with President Xi's uh, picture on them, plates and cups and stuff like that. There's kind of a, a cult of personality building up right. uh, because of uh, or in conjunction with problems in the Chinese economy. He's also stressing nationalism, uh, patriotic fervor and so on. So when you have three, the three superpowers, if you will, you know, uh, acting on domestic political impulses, and bumping up against each other in tight quarters in Europe and the South China Sea, the East China Sea, counting in Japan, mm -hmm. uh, you've got a really dangerous brew here uh, where um, an accident uh, could lead to something bad. And we can just hope that common sense prevails and it doesn't. we don't end up in a holocaust. I, I would have loved to have sat down with my grandfather, who was a Cold Warrior himself, and saying, well, right now our number one allies are Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, you know, Romania, the eastern part of Germany as a front, and then Vietnam. And, you know, his head would explode. I think, I think it's just a strange bedfellow. I mean, I mean, you're seeing Vietnam against China being one of our number one regional allies. And then, of course, all the former Soviet states in the eastern bloc, Warsaw Pact states, are all members of NATO now, uh, which is such a surreal 
you know thing to think about when you you look back just three decades ago, one generation. Well, that goes back to a fundamental error in thinking that was made back again uh, because of domestic politics, the his- Cold War hysteria uh, stirred up by Senator McCarthy and his allies. Uh, uh, in which uh, Vietnam was considered a stalking horse for China. Uh, Dean Rusk, uh, Secretary of State uh, under uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, in, in congressional testimony says, if, you know, uh, if we don't stop the Vietnamese, we're going to have China on our doorstep. Well, that was just a fundamental misreading of the relationship, the historical relationship between Vietnam uh, and China, and, and that was a result of uh, the red hysteria mm-hmm. chasing the Chinese experts in the State Department out of, out of government. Um, and so we, we bumbled into this uh, disastrous uh, Vietnam War. I'd like to take two minutes to tell you about our great new sponsor, Movement. Movement Watches, spelled M-V-M-T, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion, by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 500,000 watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. And that's saying something. The company is started by two broke college kids that wanted to wear stylus watches but couldn't afford them. So they started their own watch company. I can think many of us can identify with this, starting from the bottom as an intern, a private a butter bar lieutenant, or a new recruit, and then working our collective behinds off to get where we are. That's the story of this company. And they've come really far. The watches are gorgeous. When I went on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in the office about which one was the most beautiful. And even though I'd eventually choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. The great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. Movement watches start at just $95. At the department store, you're looking at 400 to 500 bucks for one of these incredible watches. Movement figured out by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. Classic design, quality construction, and styled minimalism. And again, over 500,000 watches sold in over 160 countries. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com. Let me spell that out. That is MV mtwatches.com slash spycast. The watch I have has a really cool and clean design. Look, seriously, it it sounds cheesy, but I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. A lot of, whoa, where'd that come from? So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast and join the movement. Let me let's talk about China because I think we're, there's a really tricky relationship that, between the Chinese and the Americans. Obviously, there's an economic. Oh, let me finish. Oh, that absolutely. Point about some. Yeah. So, uh, what we see now in Vietnam is just a reversion to um, normality. Uh, Vietnam was greatly helped by the Chinese during its war against the Americans. Uh, in fact, we used to say that China will fight to the last Vietnamese. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, But they had a conflict in 1979, a really brutal, short, nasty little war in 1979. The Vietnamese uh, have to be very wary of China, uh, but they want to keep them at arm's length. And so they turn to us naturally as their protector. They will never say we are allies. In fact, we aren't allies. Vietnam will pursue its own 
uh, interests, which will sometimes collide with the United States. But right now, under pressure from China, uh, uh, the Vietnamese uh, are welcoming us with open arms. Let me, let me talk about this Chinese relationship. So I think it's pretty tricky. It's a lot more nuanced than people want to make out. It's not just you know, the two superpowers going head-to-head. There's a lot of economic ties between these countries that have to be appreciated. And I think North Korea is one of these thorny issues that, again, I think 10 years ago, if you said that the Chinese and the Americans would be working together to check the North Koreans, most people wouldn't be believing you. But it seems like the last couple times North Korea has done something dumb, and there's so many examples to point to, the Chinese may be now fed up with some of the antics of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. There's at least conversations that when President Obama meets President Xi, soon, like it's coming up very soon, that working together to keep North Korea in check will be one of the items on their agenda. Well, from the North Korean perspective, not, they're not doing anything stupid. Right. Um, uh, some people compare them to a two-year-old stamps their feet. Well, they stamp their nuclear feet, and they get a lot of attention every time they... Uh, roll out uh, uh, a missile, uh, try a nuclear test, and so on. And that usually uh, has resulted in uh, they're getting something from us. Um, But it hasn't recently. Uh, The Obama administration calls its policy euphemistically strategic patience, which means essentially they don't want to do anything. They don't know what to do. Right. uh, the administration, the White House, the Obama White House, scuttled uh, quiet talks between uh, North Korean and U.S. diplomats uh, last year, and uh, um, in which the Koreans were trying to make a deal with us. Um, so uh, right now, uh, China really sits on the razor's edge because they don't like what's going on. They don't like uh, the, the regime uh North Korean regimes, uh, keeping everyone on edge. Uh, no one likes instability, um, and North Korea acts like it's unstable. Uh, but they don't want to overthrow the regime or work to overthrow it because then they're going to have millions of North Korean refugees in their country. So everyone's just trying to keep them quiet. You know, it's feed feed uh, Kim Jong Un a little pablum, and uh, but uh, pretty soon he's going to have a weapon that can reach. The United States, um, and that's going to be worrisome. Although the paradox of nuclear weapons is, if you use one, you're committing suicide. Right. So we got a lot more than he. I does. mean, people have been hysterical about Iran having, you know, trying to work toward a nuclear weapon. They seem to have been uh, at least temporarily halted. Um, but but uh, nuclear weapons are, are a big stick. You can. Uh, you can wave, but you can't really use it because you're going to get zapped yourself. Right. And, and and we would annihilate North Korea. I mean, the think the conventional thinking is anyway. There's a lot of nuances within this. Conventional thinking is that if North Korea fired fired a nuclear whistle a missile at us or any of our forces in the Pacific, they would be wiped out. So uh, that's at least got to be on Kim Jong Un's mind when he contemplates using one of these things. We talked to you about Chinese espionage because. This is a, a nation that, again, no matter how close we are economically, they've instigated a massive espionage program against the United States. And this is not just cyber. A lot of people read about the OPM hack and defense firms. If you look at the Predator drone and the Chinese pterodactyl drone, they're essentially the same thing. There's old school human intelligence here also. 
the story of Navy Lieutenant Commander Edward Lin, who is Taiwanese by birth, but he's a U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander who is giving secrets to the Chinese, and they seem to be a lot better at it than the Russians are. Well, one of the things they do, I don't know, they're, they're very different societies, so uh, it's apples and oranges, you might say, uh, between the Russians and the Chinese, but the Chinese, I think the the biggest weapon the Chinese have is that they 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 um, they conduct what you might call non espionage espionage. They have people here, students here, and so on, uh, who who are doing nothing but gathering open source information, and they just vacuum it up. A friend of mine uh, who was the head of counterintelligence at the FBI when he retired tells me that when he was a, a younger resident agent in Madison, Wisconsin, during the early years when Chinese students were first coming here after normalization relations in the 1980s, he said he was alerted to the fact that the lights were on all night long in the library at Madison, uh, and the fax machines were going 24-7, and that uh, he discovered that Chinese students were just, you know, just gobbling up everything and faxing it back home. Uh, that still goes on. And what the Chinese do is they amass all this open source information, analyze it, and then try to plug in holes through old-fashioned espionage, right. which now includes cyber espionage. We don't do that. I mean, we do in name, but something peculiar about American intelligence is we don't value anything that we just find out in the open. Right. we got to steal it. Yeah. You know? And we've been lucky in a way that through the years, through the Cold War, uh, there were a lot of Russians, East Europeans, uh, under you know, in the Soviet bloc, Chinese and so on, who wanted to be, who liked, admired America and wanted to be over here. Plus they had personal grudges or whatever uh, that, that, that propelled them to, to volunteer their spying services to us. We, we got really lucky. I mean, uh, you've often heard about, uh, people who follow this stuff will hear about all the betrayals uh, in the CIA, by CIA moles who betrayed Russian agents who were all executed, maybe 20 or more who were executed uh, once the KGB found mm-hmm. out about them. But another way to look at it is, is hey, we had 20 <laughs> or more spies, and some, I'm sure, had never been uncovered. Uh, one former KBG, KGB official says the CIA had two stations in Moscow, one in the American embassy and one in the KGB. <laughs> so uh, we did very well. Yeah. Uh, well, things have changed. Uh, and um, the Chinese, to go back to your uh, original question, are very good at massing open source information and using espionage to plug it in, uh, plug in the holes. And, and they're very good at They're very patient is the other thing. Uh, they will wait a long time until a p- person gets in a position where he can steal secrets. Um, and uh, uh, the difference between them and the Russians also is the Chinese are really particularly interested in economic right. because they had to build their economy from the ashes of communism when they normalized relations with us uh, in, uh, after the Nixon-Kissinger uh, visits and during the Carter administration. And their primary interest was in, in rebuilding their country and getting their economy going uh, with a kind of neo-capitalism, a uh, kind of... a uh, communist, crypto, crony capitalism. Uh, so they needed knowledge of how to, how to build machines and, and uh, do things. And so they've done it. And uh, the Russians are more interested in military intelligence, uh, intelligence secrets and so on. 
uh, diplomatic secrets and so on. The Chinese just, uh, for the most part, I mean, they wouldn't turn down any diplomatic right. or intelligence. And they've had moles in the CIA and the Pentagon. Uh, so they're not going to turn down uh, strategic intelligence like that, but they, they have a primary interest in stealing secrets to build up their economy. Let me wrap up by talking about uh, not an enemy, like we've been talking about as Russia and China, an adversary at least, but an ally, and that's Israel. Uh, Jonathan Pollard's release relatively recently, it's a couple of months ago, has really reinvigorated the conversation about Israeli espionage in the United States. As Pollard is not an outlier. He's not necessarily the anomaly. And you actually wrote an article for Newsweek two years ago about this, and it was talking about uh, how the Israelis have continued kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge relationship with espionage, with Americans, with the FBI, with the uh, U.S. Congress, and, th and there's not a lot of pushback against this. And you tell a great story that I, I want, if you would, to kind of tell our audience, and it's the spy in the air duct story from when Al Gore was vice president. Can you lay that out a little bit for our audience real quickly? I have to quickly say that the Israelis vehemently deny yes. this story, and I vehemently reply that it's, that it's true. It might not be absolutely true in all the details, but um, the Israelis were very interested in what Al Gore was thinking and what he was going to do when he was in Israel in regard to U.S.-Israeli relations, so they spied on him. Uh, the Israelis are master spies. They're very, very good at this. And intelligence agencies don't have any permanent allies or, or consistent allies. Uh, they can work together uh, with one hand and be, uh, uh, you know, have the other hand in your pocket. Uh, and that's what we do too. Right. So uh, yeah, this is not to demonize Israelis. We're doing the same no. thing, going the other direction. I just no. think it's an interesting. But concept. the Israelis, instead of just keeping quiet, mom and mumbling some platitudes they they get up on their hind legs and they vehemently deny any spying on the united states whatsoever this is just that's just bs i mean it's the mo it's an open secret the, the, the irony here is that you talk to any most any senior or not even senior cia pentagon intelligence official and they'll laugh out loud they say, of course the israelis are spying on us and they'll count out examples or strong suspicions of spying operations, or ongoing spying operations, they can't stop. Um, and uh, they, they just chuckle at these uh, Israeli denials that they're spying on us. They're very clever, most part. They're not, I would be shocked if they were running a, a, a Pollard today mm -hmm. uh, who volunteered, came to them. He was just selling information. Uh, but um, I think they would be very cap uh, very. Uh, careful about that, but I've also been told quite reliably that the Israelis have a black station here outside the embassy that's entirely clandestine covert, which if they're listening, they will, I'm sure, vehemently deny again. Email us with the location if you're listening. I won't tell anybody. So, and we have black stations or unilateral stations. I was a unilateral case officer. Mm -hmm. uh, I was hiding my identity as best I could from the South Vietnamese intelligence as well as I could. As well as I could. Uh, we, that's the way we operate right. in every, uh, most every country that's worth anything to us. We uh, have a bilateral relationship uh, with our friends, and we have a unilateral relationship in which they are not our friends, and we spy on them. And I dare say it's the French do the same. Uh, the British, um, certainly uh, Russians, uh, South Africa we had that relationship with. 
So it's common. I mean, this is you know, like this is childhood stuff. Right. This is what we do. I mean, is there a way, the way that politics are right now, to have a nuanced conversation, a reasonable conversation about this, with, you know, whether certain sides are yelling anti-Semitism, the other side is actually maybe anti-Semitic. You know, there may be just like we talked about with foreign policy conversations. Do politics get in the way of having a real national security conversation? Let's broaden this beyond Israel. National security conversation about these key important issues because I, I agree with you. You see a a respected member of the Senate with two sentences in a paragraph saying something very nuanced and good about foreign policy, and the next sentence says this is all Obama's fault. And you know it's it seems like we're in a position where we just can't have those conversations. Anymore. Yeah. Well, you've got a presidential candidate of the Republican Party who's saying that Obama created and. Hillary Clinton created the Islamic State. So, judging from that alone, you'd have to say, no, we don't. We we can't have any nuanced uh, discussion of foreign policy. Uh, look at the discussion around the Iranian deal. I mean, opponents of the Iran, some opponents of the Iranian deal said it, it actually allows the Iranians to get a nuclear weapon. It's absolutely false. So, uh, whether you like that agreement or not, and there are things to criticize in that agreement. But when people just start exaggerating beyond recognition or, or flat-out lying about these events, uh, it, it's hard to say uh, that we can have a nuanced discussion of foreign policy. But I'm reading a book right now about the relationship between uh, General uh, MacArthur and President Truman. Uh, Truman fired MacArthur during the Korean War because he kept uh, exceeding his authorities, uh, talking about uh, threatening, uh, he was threatening China with atomic bombs and so on. And, and, and MacArthur was a beloved by the extreme right in America who, who liked his style and, and wanted a, you know, to nuke China and stuff like that. So this is not really that new. Uh, we've always had a degree of partisanship um, in uh, our discussions of foreign policy, and it waxes and it wanes. Right now it's waxing. It's been waxing for some time. Uh, Republicans who favor uh, Trump uh, are, have made it clear uh, they're setting the table to discredit uh, a Clinton presidency from, from day one, and that will include foreign policy. Um, so they're going to be uh, screaming at Hillary Clinton for not, I guess, not confronting China, I put it broadly. And where that goes, when you have, when you have the, the opposition, Xi Jinping, who's also... Uh, stirring up nationalist sentiment in his country, what's going to happen when U.S. naval vessels and Chinese naval vessels collide or bump into each other in the sky? Then you've got a toxic brew, a really flammable uh, brew. um, That's not not uh, just a hypothetical. I mean, it was, what, a decade or so, maybe a little longer ago, where a U.S. spy plane was rammed accidentally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by Chinese fighters and it yeah. had to land actually yeah. in China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Chinese couldn't do much about that. The Chinese yeah. military uh, has much improved uh, and it seems eager to flex its muscles. So it's a dangerous situation. <clears throat> and uh, I guess that just falls upon uh, the rest of us, meaning American citizens, to try to demand some serious unheated discussion 
about American foreign policy and its role in the world. And that will include what our intelligence agencies should be doing and holding our intelligence agencies to a high standard of getting it right. Well, and I think, you know, just to keep this relatively even-handed, I know we don't want to have false equivalency here, but Trump is an outlier. I think that one of the key components here is not demonizing the right from the left also because you do see in, in you know, look, Trump's an easy target, but when he's gone and when somebody a little more reasonable uh, is in his place, it's very easy for uh, the left wing to, to poke at people's relatively mainstream ideas with some kind of political partisan bent and, I, and, and it's rare that you get anything done that way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I, I totally agree with you on that. I, hopefully we're moving in that direction. but Don't, don't see it right yeah, now. No. But there's always tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Will Hurd, and I'm, I'm, I'm about as left-wing as they come. And we've had him on SpyCast before. And, of course, he's a Republican. And uh, we had an amazing conversation about policy. And you couldn't have two people who are more diametrically opposed politically, but we were able to sit down for an hour and just He's talk. a very reasonable yeah. guy. Uh, I like Will Hurd. Um, I disagree with some of his policies, yeah. but I had a long, uh, f- in terms of how, how much time reporters usually get with members of Congress, I had a long conversation with him. He was very reasonable, very thoughtful. He cares deeply about this country and getting it, and the intelligence agencies getting it right. So if we had more Republicans uh, like him, with whom uh, Democrats might uh, disagree, but can at least talk things through and come to some, I mean, a compromise. This is, what, this is how the world goes right. for anyone who's married knows that you have to compromise. Um, anyone who has a job knows you have to compromise. And we've just got to get a spirit of compromise on American foreign policy, move forward. Uh, and make some sense out of this very dangerous world. We'd like to thank our great sponsor, ZipRecruiter, for continuing to support SpyCast. And again, welcome movement to the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. And you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to MovementWatches.com SpyCast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. Well, Jeff Stein covers the spy agencies and foreign policy for Newsweek. You can find him all over Newsweek.com and on Twitter. Is it Spy, ta- spy Talker? That's right. At Spy Talker. Uh, it's, it's great to follow. Uh, not only do you get uh, his columns and his ideas, but he's a very good at linking you to other people you've never heard of before within the world of foreign policy and intelligence. So, Jeff... Thank you for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here. 
your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. 